This fly has been landing on my head the entire podcast. Arr! Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Paul. Hey. Hey, Ben. Hey, Paul. Hello, audience. Hello, friends. So we just published a blog on the Stack Overflow blog because we have a new feature for Stack Overflow for Teams. It's called Articles. Articles. As oh, a former journalist, wow. I approve. I don't really know what it does, but since it's called Articles, I like it. I read about it. it here's it. what I think you've done. I think that you looked around and you saw social networks like Twitter and Facebook wall posts and also just sort of where you guys have been going with questions and thought to yourself, no one has ever just put a text box up where people could just post <laughs> long posts. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so like like almost like a like a log of web thoughts. Like some mm, sort of web log. Blog. It seems like you've added this revolutionary new category of internet content called blog. Now let's be clear. This is for teams, right? So, and it's actually, not for the public side. Let, let's separate that for the humans. Even though I am a, I am a happy part of this marketing product. It actually is really good for people to know the difference. There's Stack Exchange and Stack Overflow, which are like the full blast. Here's public. 20, 20 billion questions, publicly moderated, yeah. Creative Commons, open to all. Yep. And now, to, what, and Teams is like for me and my buddies at little places like. Microsoft. I mean, I just like, like where, who uses Teams? And, and yeah, yeah. How? So it's an internal version of Stack Overflow. Actually, funny story. One of the first mm. people to come to us and ask us to build it was the FBI. We haven't written that story and put it on the blog yet, but it's going to be a fun story for another day. But I don't believe they are currently a customer. But we had other folks approach us like Bloomberg, Bloomberg and Microsoft and say, you know, all, all of our engineers are using Stack Overflow, but there's lots of questions they have to ask that they can't ask in public because it's about proprietary code or code for something that is still, you know, it sure. isn't, isn't hasn't been pushed live. It's not in prod. So yeah, so so a little bit of a little bit of how how the bread is made. Sometimes people forget that and they post code from their <laughs> internal code base on Stack Overflow, and we get a lot of emails. But this is a this is normal. You're you're like I have five thousand engineers or five hundred, yeah. and they use this thing all day. We should have one inside. You know who's the, one of the biggest users of the Wikipedia software is the CIA, right? right? Like they've got their own Wikipedia. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. Well, yeah, I think that's actually related to the articles feature because one thing people are using their internal stack overflow for is a knowledge base. And sometimes that knowledge takes the form of Q&A. But other times there are things like, you know, team updates or team policies that you might want to have in an article format. Like where would you use, I would think, so the first thing that would come to mind for me is like really complicated narrative DevOps recipes. Like sort of, I've got to, so you've got to do this thing and you got to get one of these stood up and it's not, and there's a lot of decisions to be made. It's not something that can be automated. It's not just a bulleted mm -hmm. list. Like what are the use cases for blogging? Let's just call it what it is inside of Stack Overflow for Teams. I think like one of the things that I learned a lot about when I came, which I didn't know about before, was documentation, which has like a really rich history in the world of software engineering. How do you do mm. documentation well? And then there's documentation, then there's the company wiki, then there's then Stack Overflow came along and became sort of like this public corpus and this public brain. And so internally, as people get bigger and bigger with their Stack Overflow for Teams, they want to have everything in one place. They don't want to have a Confluence wiki over here and then, you know, like their own homebrew, you know, list of documents over here and yeah. then the, quest the question and answer database over here. They want to have one thing. And so this does inch us a little bit more towards having like sort of CMS capabilities where there's like different kinds of knowledge artifacts you can create. 
Those long answers are often a little kind of out of place, and you kind of you want a place to put stuff yeah. that's a little bigger and a little broader. And I liked what you said about like if there's a narrative to it, like what if there's a, some sub- subjectivity to it, and you want to walk people through the rationale. Maybe this is a better place to do that than the Q and A where we try to keep things very you know objective. Look, the FAQ is the great folk form of the internet. Like it's how Usenet discussion boards and sort of like asking questions and getting answers online is the best way to sort of meta moderate a community Mm. because it keeps people from asking the same damn questions (laughs) over and over and over again. And Stack tapped into that, right? And then that, but there is also this need for kind of broader storytelling and institutional knowledge, which, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, I'm going to continually mock your organization for adding a text box in 2020. That's what but, we gave re- you on the podcast. It, it took us longer to make than dark mode, Paul. I mean, this was some serious engineering that had to go into this. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, though, seriously, like, this is the thing. None of it's that complicated. Like, if you were making a 3D color picker that also allowed you to, like, factor in, I don't know, like, the, the phase of the moon, we'd all be like, oh, and then nobody would use it. Mm. But people are going to put words in the text box. And then... The question is, what happens next? I just have one question, Sarah, which is, as a former journalist and now the director of content, one of the first things I said when I arrived was, why don't we do articles in the meta like Dev2? We have so many great people here. Yeah. They have these amazing discussions. And recently, we had even been bringing like interesting Q&A artifacts over from the Software Engineering Stack Exchange, where it sort of evolved into a discussion with the comments and multiple answers. We bring that over to the blog and sort of write a little bit of context around it. And people love having that discussion. So why wouldn't we just do articles on public Stack Overflow? Well, I think that's a good question. And it's something that we've talked about. I think something that we have to remember is that Stack Overflow as it exists is something that is that works, right? It's a community of people that really want to have the world's largest knowledge base of programming questions. And putting something very different like articles into Stack Overflow would really upset that ecosystem and the way that, for example, you know, our moderators spend a lot of time moderating questions and for them to moderate long articles or subjective writing, that puts a lot of work on their plates. So we wouldn't want to introduce something like articles without being really thoughtful. I think that there's definitely ways to scratch that itch that don't have to do with changing the format of main stack overflow. So I think that's how we're thinking about it. We don't want to throw a bunch of extra works on our moderators. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay, thank you. It's actually fascinating, right? Because this is scale and inaction. In a medium-sized or large org, there's very low risk to putting that text box up there and just going like, hey, have at it. You know, if you've got something longer you need to write, obviously put it here. We'll give you some hints as to best practices as to how to organize it, the tags work and so on. At the scale of stack in public, it's almost like you're saying, oh, we're also going to add a text box to Instagram where you can add your narrative. Like you're blowing up this like very clear mental model about the Q&A model. And it, it really like when you're talking about hundreds of millions of people instead of a couple thousand max, and it really is just an order of magnitude of difference. It's, that's kind of where product happens is in that delta. Yeah. And just saying it because it's sort of fascinating, right? Like, yes, of course. Oh, my God. You drop the simple text box. You add blogging to stack. And yeah. Kaboom. Kaboom. <laughs> yeah. 
This just popped into my head, and it's just it's just relevant to this world. If you go to MailChimp.com slash developer, MailChimp got in touch with my company post late early in the year, late last year, and said, hey, uh, we're going to relaunch our developer website. And there was a lot of product change happening. Just sort of they were bringing their transactional API for mail into the sort of MailChimp fold. And they wanted the API docs and all of the developer docs and all the developer SDKs. And like it, it was a kind of a fascinating project because... Docs in general tend to be kind of a lot of stuff, like just like we got our stuff here and hope you find your way. And in this case, it was very much like everything's on GitHub. You can you can put in requests. It's all very interactive. If you're in JavaScript and you say, I want JavaScript code samples, it remembers that all the way through as you're using it. So anyway, MailChimp.com slash developer. We think it's a pretty good example of how developer docs should look and be. Fascinating. Yeah, I say I say that both to market the firm where I am co-founder, but also like I didn't do a thing. You know, other people worked really right. hard, mostly at MailChimp and with us in support. Developer docs are hard. I think one thing I've learned to appreciate really strangely is the left nav. <laughs> in mm-hmm. developer docs, it looks like you guys nailed the left nav. <laughs> Listen, nobody's fooling around on the left yeah. nav. Yeah. yeah. Got to so, nail that. So they were a great partner. And and really, we're very proud of that result because it's a lot of developers using a lot of code when it comes to MailChimp. Docs are so hard, yeah. Woof, they are. And, you know, they're a system. They need to kind of light up and be dynamic. You can't just drop them in the CMS or hope that the swagger output is going to be enough. Like, you have to, you have to think that stuff through now. Developers demanding. That's not. That's off base they're, for They're my pretty experience. laid back, easygoing Speaking customers. Speaking of which, yeah. <laughs> I, have a good, I have a good thing for us to talk about that is tearing my home apart. Oh, no. It is threatening our very life and the ability to coexist. Sarah, let us save your marriage. Let us do it. I'll take that cat. No, it's not tea. So should managers of developers ever make technical decisions? Mm. Oh, God. This is classic developer thinking. <laughs> ever. Ever is the magical word. This is like when, this is like eight years ago when every developer on Hacker News decided that deadlines were impossible and must never become part of programmer culture. And then that one went away in like six months because, you know, you actually, no one got anything done for six months. I would say 80% of developer time, 20% is spent coding, 80% is spent convincing their managers that they should use a Lisp or that everything that we know about management is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think actually we're not we're not unbiased. I don't think we can actually answer this question because none of us are ICs. Yeah. Like it's not really fair. Yeah, yeah. Here's what I've learned in eight hundred and fifty thousand years of using computers <laughs> is that it's a great question. And like every single engineering related question ever, it is proposed as a Boolean and the answer is like a five thousand word text box. Yeah, okay? that's probably like, right. It depends. Yeah, it depends. I mean, I this reminds me, you know, it's like it's like office space. There are managers who come in and manage you who are lording it over you because they're your manager and they don't actually have the knowledge. And then I'm sure Sarah, there are managers, right, who were great ICs who worked their way up, who might have engineering knowledge and could say, Hey, I think this is the right solution. In fact, I'm deciding for us so we can get some consensus and they know what they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said though, for being like really close to the metal, right. For like being in the code every day, which is something you can't do as a manager. You know, it's sometimes not having that context. Right. You can lose the ability to kind of make those just not maybe the ability, but if you don't have the understanding of the day to day, just because you're not in it yeah. all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's let's argue this from the coder's point of view, which is 
you have, manager, once again swooped in and making decisions that are informed is, is not really what we're talking about, right? What we're talking about is you've decided on a platform, you've decided on versions, you've decided on, you've brought in a vendor who've told us we have to use this instead of that. We can't use the database we know. And we don't know why. And you're telling us we yeah, have Yeah, it's because you had a nice dinner with them right. and they gave you some swag and now you want us to incorporate it in the platform. Right. You've already rubbed us the wrong way five or six times. Now back off and let us do, do what we do. I mean, this is really in not truly non-technical organizations. This is very dangerous right? because the CIO or CTO is a vulnerable human being without a lot of time. And people are constantly telling them what the right solution is. And then they manage by fiat and they're just like, okay, well, we're using Oracle. I'm tired of you guys. We're using Oracle. Shout out to Oracle. Great podcast sponsor. I don't know why it's Paul Lind from Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, in your home, I know obviously you're a manager and director of lots of folks. Is Satoshi an IC or a manager or what does Satoshi do? Yeah, yeah. An IC. An IC. Okay, got it. Yeah, but let's be clear. Satoshi, Sarah's significant other, is kind of a super IC. Like he's very experienced yes. and knowledgeable and has built large platforms. Not that I know who he is or anything about him. <laughs> no. And, no, but the well, thing yeah, is, Bitcoin is a very large platform. <laughs> yes, that's right. But no, the thing is though, there's something to it here, right? Because to that, especially because being an engineer, there's a path of, you know, at some point you need to decide. Am I going to be a manager? There's very few companies actually that offer a path for engineers mm. that isn't management that become more and more specialized as time goes on. So I think that's an interesting challenge too. When you're a manager and someone on your team has a really deep technical knowledge, what is the value that you bring to that person? I've seen this from a zillion different angles, because especially because my company works with a lot of different orgs. And so there's a couple, I think like smaller mid-sized engineering groups with a specific product focus tend to be in a pretty good place, right? Like they have tools that they use. They are agile enough that they can get upgraded to a relatively recent version of the software. And like the ones that are, are in a tough spot are the really big ones that are running like, you know, Red Hat Enterprise Linux from 1999, you know, and an old version of Java that has, you know, Groovy on top of it and they can't really <laughs> get much done. Yeah. And then then somebody comes in with a new solution and it swoops in and, and it's just a lot of damage, right? Like there's a typically tight coupling between technical decision yeah. makers and engineers in small to mid-sized orgs. From my perspective as somebody who used to be an IC, like I was a feature writer for a long time. So it was my job to generate the ideas, to work on them for like weeks or even months independently and have to like get to a place where, you know, it was something that would be worth publishing, then I'd have to write it. And then at the end, an editor would come in. And if the editor started rewriting stuff that I felt was more about the color and the texture, I would get very angry. And eventually, after a while, I would no longer work with that editor. But, you know, the, like some editors I ended up having great relationships with, the people who helped make it clearer, tighten the transitions, better the structure. And maybe they would even come in early. And if I had an idea, they'd like work through the idea with me, like Paul was saying, like what platform we're going to use, what vendor we're we going to use, like the high level, where, where, what are the building blocks we're going to use to make this stuff? But yeah, once like I can imagine, like you were saying, you're not in the metal, you're not day to day on the code. If they came in and tried to sort of like change the style of writing, which is like my day to day, then, you know, our relationship wouldn't last very long. So maybe to say there's a spectrum of like a good manager to IC relationship and a bad manager to IC relationship. You know, there are people who approach it in a certain way that is productive and people who approach it in a way that's unproductive, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think 
what you're looking for too is someone that is open for discussion and isn't swooping in with a technical decision and yeah. saying, here's what we're going to do, right? Because in this case, it's often helpful as maybe like a consensus builder or someone that can talk to folks on the team to figure out a good direction, but maybe not the most helpful to come in without context and say, here's a direction I think we should go. Totally. I think that's it. I'll give you a developer's point of view example. I was once working on a project 10 years ago for a very large cultural institution. And the CTO went, okay, look, I know how these things go. We're going to pick a content management and asset management platform. And we're going to spend half a million dollars. And it needs to probably be uh, like this. And so she used that to narrow down the decision. And from there, they picked this thing that was an absolute boondoggle and everybody received it and went, well, there goes my career. Like, no one cares <laughs> about this. It's a really bad tool. It's hard to work with. It looks like Microsoft Windows 3.1 and I hate it. You really just wrecked like 10 people's lives and took away their future with that decision. Yeah. yeah. If she'd said Drupal, <laughs> everybody would be like, all right, all right, I'll be all right. I can figure this out. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, I liked what you said about like, right, coming in and maybe asking questions about a decision. Like, why did, why did you do it this way? If we did it this way, would it, could it be faster or slower or more effective or, you know, getting to that consensus as opposed to coming and saying, no, don't like this. We're going to do it this way or coming in and saying, this is the way we're going to do it. Right. Like let the ICE volunteer some of the ideas or start to build some of the fabric and then come in and question it. Then it's a dialogue, like you said. Yeah. And I think treating them like the experts too. Like Paul, it sounds mm -hmm. like in that situation, there wasn't a lot of conversations happening. Oh no. And there were vendors all over the place and, you know, just, just exactly the perfect storm for incompetence to, to thrive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just, I think all these things too are definitely a conversation because sometimes people do know better. So really the answer when we go back around, should managers be involved in technical decisions is Tightly knit communities with good listeners on both sides yeah. is what we really need. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry if that disappoints you. Yeah. Thanks for solving it. Love coding and want to learn new skills? Join the weekly AWS series, Developers Let's Code, live on Twitch. With hands-on demos and virtual sessions, you'll learn new core concepts on some of the hottest topics in cloud technology. Subscribe today at codewithaws.com. Paul, I know you did a fun little cloud deploy last week. Is that right? You want to tell us about that and then we'll wrap the episode? Oh, absolutely. So in my weekend evenings are time for me and my computer as opposed to weekdays and afternoons, <laughs> mornings, and regular evenings. Paul, you should move your computer more than three feet away from your bed. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. When you told me that, I was troubled. I was troubled. I don't think workstation in the bedroom is the way to go. I live in a small condo. There's not too mm. much you can do. So a while ago, I don't know if anybody's ever used the website Twitter, but it'll mess your head up. It's very depressing. Mm -hmm. Anyone ever had that experience? I've heard of that site, but I try not to look at it. It's like a yeah. turn your brain to mush. I mean, that's 100% true. Yeah, but I, I sometimes use it, and I've found that maybe I want to use it a little bit less. So anyway, I, I made a, a really silly tool, and I'm not – we'll put the, the URL in the show notes because it's one of those auto-generated cloud URLs. But so the tool, all it did was take a lot of JSON data off of different public 
resources. Like the Smithsonian publishes all of their, they publish 11 million different object records in JSON onto GitHub. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you know, multiple to multiple museums. There's 2 million pictures of herbs alone. Archive.org carries a lot of old books. And it's a, that's a wonderful resource. Like, so taxpayer funded public or not-for-profit orgs that have these wonderful archives, but they're kind of hard to get to. Like you Mm got to go and search and know what you're looking for. So I just kind of spidered them a little bit and put those public resources into a SQLite database. So there's like a million things in the database. And then it pulls out 10 random images whenever mm. you hit the page. Simple thing, like anything, when you're dealing with messy metadata and lots of it, it, it right. you know took a couple evenings of messing around. Posted some screenshots of it and people were like, are you going to put this up? And I'm like, all right, well, I guess I better. And so I was like, I'm going to use Google Cloud Run. I looked at a lot of other why? things, but I needed Yeah, why? So the, the problem I had... My preference would have been Glitch, but my database was already, the paid plan for Glitch is like 400 megs of storage, and I need at least a gig. Okay, of course. That would have been my preference. It's so easy to deploy on that thing. So I was like, all right, I should learn Google. I've never used Google Cloud, even in anger, and so <laughs> I, I, should, I should at least try it. Like, you got to know. I've never done Azure. I've done lots of AWS stuff. Yeah. So I was like, all right, two hours. I'm going to get a Docker container up and upload it to Google Cloud Run, which basically is like, put your Docker container over here, and we will listen on a port, and it will work just fine. But what I learned, I learned an important thing, which is that the way that actually runs, so you you know what Lambda functions are on, on Amazon, right? Yes. They're just functions, like pure functions. You give them some input, and you get some output, and like they're not maintaining accounts or anything. And so Google Cloud Run is basically that, but it's a container in the middle instead of a function. So not really a full-fledged server. It's really just like one port, here you go. But it also is a full-fledged web server because we live in this weird world. So what I learned is that it has, what you get is two, one or two gigs of memory and everything runs in the memory, including all your data. So I made my container, which Docker is really confusing. I don't know why people do that to themselves, but boy, you can bundle a bunch of stuff up and I put it up. And it took about two hours and everything broke. Everything, I couldn't understand anything. But then you just kind of find everybody's scripts. You hit stack. People are like, here's how you deploy. And so by copying and pasting from the internet, I I was able to get it up. My observation, just with all these cloud services, I mean, first of all, they're all just pretending that they're not really just a bunch of servers or abstractions over servers. Or that they're not AWS, actually. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Deep down, it's all AWS. <laughs> when you look at Google Cloud and you look at that left nav bar of all the different services, and it just goes and goes. They just breed new services. And it's tough, right? It's, there's none of that Apple. Like, imagine the Apple Cloud where they were just like, we're going to have three products. That's it. And you're going to want to use them. That's about it. And you'll be like, well, I need a web server. And they'll be like, no, nah, you don't really need that. So anyway, we'll, we'll put the link in. It's fun to look at lots of pictures of random stuff. It's still really hard to host stuff in 2020. Mm. It's hard Isn't to host a website. It yeah. is. Yeah. And so what you've put, you've put it up and you shared it. I put it up. I shared it out. It seems to work fine. It's silly. It's a, yeah. it's a nice distraction. One of my favorite things in life is the cabinet of curios. Are you guys familiar with this? You know, if, if you were a noble person back in like the 16th, 17th, 18th century when science was becoming a thing, you were, you would have a room in your house that was just full of amazing, like Paul was saying, natural artifacts. These are some herbs I've dried. This is a fossil. This mm-hmm. is, you know, like a fine falcon or whatever. Just like things that were amazing about the world and about nature. Public records of art are kind of like that. And so I always try to put into my feed my Reddit and Twitter and Instagram feed. Like you were saying, Paul, I follow some chemistry accounts where they're just like 
this is what iron looks like magnified, you know, 10,000 times. This is a video of a crocodile trying to eat a turtle, but it can't because the turtle has a shell and then the turtle gets away. And like those things just break up the angry politics and negative tech is monopoly stuff that is also part of my feed. Wow. So what is this pulling in? Images from the Smithsonian's image server API. And it's like whatever people are calling on the API. It's not like random. Is it random images or ones that people are calling? Mm. Totally random. Totally random. This is a beautiful ball. It makes me just makes me happy to look at this ball. Pictures from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Pages at random from the Internet Archive. Military diving. Ancient bracelet from the first century BC. This is what I need. Yes, a fossil. Mm, This is what I need. You know where it's really good is you just sit there and you can click on them and they go back to the sources. It's nice when you're on the phone in the in the era of the pandemic to be able to kind of just browse through some art while you're looking into the screen and people are talking. Because you can still stay focused, but look at stuff. Another thing that I had done like this, which I'd recommend for just sort of like mental, a little bit of peace, is I, I signed up for Artsy. Do you, do you know that service at all? Um, yep. It's like an art yeah. recommendation service. You just click on three or four or five things that you like, and then you refresh it once a day, and it just serves you new art. And if you like something, you like it. And then over time, it like learns certain tastes. And just like every day, I would just like check it once or twice a day. And then I would save my favorite ones and make them backgrounds on my computer and then have it rotate through the backgrounds, you know, 50 times a day or something. So you're always getting this like nice, fresh look. See, that's what you need. A lot of variety and images and images, random images from the Internet. What could go wrong? (laughs) Well, no, that's actually that for me, it was part of the point, right, which is I'm going to use um, big cultural institutions. That makes a lot of sense. They have their own filter. Yeah, yeah, and just monitor my sources a little bit, right? So at one point, when I was messing around with this, I imported all the zines from the Internet Archive collection, which is like a lot of UFO stuff and a lot of white supremacy. And I'm like, you know what? I I just don't want that in my world. I have a choice. I have a choice here. And then I'm like, oh, you know what? You can actually elevate the American Museum of uh, African American History. You can elevate that. You can randomly bring that up so you see more of it. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, you know, I could shape a little world that I would like to see mm-hmm. and spend time there instead of watching people yell about the same thing yeah. over and over and over again, yeah, which, which exactly. God bless, I tend to I tend to agree with people in, in the world, but I'm just like, I can't see it anymore. I know what's yeah. going to happen. I know we're all going to go vote in three months. So yeah. I got to just, we're just got to get through it. Yeah. Well, thank you for building this and sharing your adventure with the Google Cloud Run. So scale of one to 10. If I'm building a project, how much would you recommend? I got to say, for for deploying a container, you know, once you get a few of the magic words right, to me, the hard part is Docker. I find Docker really confusing. I don't find containers confusing. I find Docker confusing. I'm just like, oh, an image container. Because if you use it every day, I think it's like Git, where you're just like, yeah, it's fine. But when you don't use it every day, it just... The interface to containers that Docker provides, it always requires a lot of wrapping your brain around. And the other thing, every cloud service has this problem, but my God, where are my logs? Where are my logs? Where do I put the things in the folder so that they appear where you say they will appear? And where is my stuff is is like the foundational question. Every single new thing around containerization, hosting, or cloud platforms should just have a single document called where's my stuff and where do I see it? Like environment (laughs) variables, all of it. That's great. Yeah, I think that's right. You built this thing. I'm seeing ephemeralist, you know, dash IX47P. But then in my browser tab, it says browselator, which maybe is a word you made up. 
I love it. Frazzleator is <laughs> a word I made up. Frazzleator. Um, no, it's, That's it's a yeah. Ephemeralist. <laughs> ephemeralist is, uh, I think, what I'll call this thing. Yeah. An, ephem- an ephemeralist tab is called a browsulator. Browsulator. <laughs> yes. That's right. <laughs> I got it. Browsulator. All right, y'all, it's that time of the week. We're going to do our lifeboat. This one just has, uh, for me as a former English major, a nice ring to it. Calculating drawdown in pandas. I guess this is about like uh, when pandas get sad and are kind of low energy. You're going to get, how you're going to be so how do you disappointed. Know how the panda's doing and how do you make the panda feel better, right? No? Okay. <laughs> no. no. Uh, let me share this link and we can jump in a little bit. I guess for those who are not aware, hip us to what is a panda and why would you draw it down? Well, we can say lots of funny things. Well, I mean, okay, pandas is a scientific and numerical processing library in Python. And it's the question gets to it. It's like data frames. Like it's really good for dealing. When scientists need to do spreadsheet things, pandas are one of the things they reach for. Gotcha. So they're calculating right the end, the heat death of the world here. There's a drawdown. It goes in a sequence. And yep. They want to they figure out how to calculate it somehow. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. This says profit cumulative. Okay, so they're looking at a data frame here for some kind of earnings report or something like that. Ooh, fun. The question was asked two years ago by user 8491020. And we have an answer from the same user. Answer your own question. question. There you go. Oh, no, wait. It I happens. see. They answered, they answered their happened. own question. Yeah, yeah, it means no one else could help, but they finally figured it out. Hopefully they can help someone else. Other people did answer, but the the user who asked the question and said, this is the simplest solution I found, apparently had the best solution. But the knowledge was shared. It has been seen by 6,000 people and given 21 outvotes. So the important part- Wow, so he got his own lifeboat. I wonder if this is a first for us. I mean, listen, I think this is a first on our lifeboat. Yeah, you saved yourself. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor, heal thyself. The programmer, solve your yeah. own problem. All right. User 8491020. Congratulations on asking a question, answering a question, and getting a lifeboat. Shout out to you. All right. It's been a great episode. We learned a lot. If you're interested in articles, you can check that out on the blog. If you're interested in Paul's ephemera stuff, we'll put that in the show notes. If you're interested in the debate over managers and ISDs, throw us a line on Twitter or, or yell at your manager. At yeah, yell at your manager. Podcast at stackoverflow.com. Have them listen to this episode. I'm Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. And I'm Sarah Chips. You can find me on GitHub at Sarah Joe. And I am Paul Ford, co-founder of Postlight. Check out MailChimp.com slash developer. It's work we help them with that we're very proud of, and it's relevant to this audience. Good docs. Right. Yeah.